It's always good to worship on the Lord's Day together. Sing great old hymns, old and new. There's still good, new, theologically based, biblical hymns coming out. And there's good old stuff that we still want to sing. Just because it's old doesn't mean it's bad. Just because it's new doesn't mean it's bad. It's how biblical it is that matters. Well, let's turn to the Bible today and hear a message from King Solomon and Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I want to bring a message to you entitled, Two by Two, Observations on Life. I'll explain that title in a moment. Two by Two, Observations on Life. We've been looking at Ecclesiastes, and it starts off by, maybe we, when we read it, we might think, well, it's a negative book. All is vanity, all is meaningless. But if you understand what the word is behind that in most translations of vanity and meaningless, the word behind it is Havel, a fleeting vapor, a mist, temporary, transitory. Life is over quickly. So make sure you know that you're spending your time the best way possible. You're spending your resources the best way possible for the Lord. And when it's all said and done, what matters most is that you love the Lord, you fear Him, and that you live a life of holiness, obeying His commandments. Now it takes Solomon a whole book to get there because he wants to deal with all of these things that are coming up in the world. All of these issues that people throw out. Maybe unbelievers will say them, and maybe a Christian who's untaught will say them, or practice these things. Or someone who's running from the Lord that's possibly been saved like Jonah and is running from the Lord. Or like Solomon who's turned away for a time and chasing his own idols. We're covering all of chapter 4 today, Lord willing. Um, Some of you know that I usually just cover a few verses, but we're going all 16 verses. It fits well together because these are all observations that he makes here about life in the world. So I want to read the chapter to you, and I'll just substitute Havel in when it says that. That's the Hebrew word, Havel. Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead, more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is Hevel and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. Then I looked again at Hebel under the sun. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither son nor brother. Yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is Hebel and is a grievous task. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. 
Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. And a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. For he has come out of prison to become king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I have seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. There is no end to all the people, to all who were before them, and even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him. For this too is Hebel and striving after wind. Have you ever observed someone living and acting foolishly and learn from it? Have you ever really looked at someone's life that you know, or, or maybe a co-worker, friend, family member, and seen something sinful, seen something foolish? And you don't find joy in seeing this person stumble. You don't find joy in seeing them sin, but you do learn a lesson from it, from that negative example. Well, that's what Solomon is teaching us here in chapter 4. Just to let you know where we've come from in the book of Ecclesiastes, the first two chapters were dealing with his own experience. King Solomon, the preacher, Koheleth in Hebrew, we just call him the preacher, is preaching a message to younger people. He's in his old age. He's come back to the Lord. And he's saying, don't make these same mistakes I did. Don't run in these sinful paths that I ran. Don't, don't go that direction. I want to give you some wisdom. So he writes this book, probably from those speeches that he gave to the ruling class of young people in Israel at the time. So chapters 1 and 2 deal with all the ways that he ran from the Lord and chased after his own desires. He chased after pleasure. He chased after money. He chased after property. All of these different things that he thought would bring him joy and satisfaction. And he says it's all a mist. It's all a vapor. It's there, but when I die, it doesn't matter. It's all gone. All of this wealth that he accumulated, what does it really matter? There's no profit. There's no advantage to it when it comes to death. It won't last after death. And then in chapter 3, we began a new section there. And there he began to make observations. Not experience but observations here. And he'll continue that through chapter 5. So we're in the middle of that section. And he's observing things in the world. And the very first thing that he observed in chapter 3 was the providence of God. That God is maintaining all things in the universe to fulfill his purposes. So no matter what Solomon says in the rest of the book, remember, he says, God is in control of all things. Above the sun, under heaven, God makes sure all things work out to his good and righteous purposes. But under the sun where we live, well, we don't have God's vantage point. We don't see the same thing that God sees. We don't know what the future holds for us. We don't know how long we'll live. We don't know what comes after us. We just have a view under the sun. And so you'll see this phrase come up quite a bit under the sun in Ecclesiastes. Well, here in chapter 4, I entitled the message two by two because the word two comes up quite a bit in this section. It's hard to see it in English. I wish they would just translate it the same every time, but it would make for some awkward sentences. The number two plays a major role in this chapter. It comes up eight times in Hebrew. And sometimes it'll be translated both. Sometimes a dependent of a man. Sometimes it's just the word another. 
sometimes second. For whatever reason, he's, he's letting us know that it's good to have someone else. All of these problems that he's going to list in the world, it's good to have someone else. It's good to have help. It's good to have comfort. It's good to have someone with you through these things that he's going to observe in life. So all of this chapter is about the observations that he makes so that we can learn how to live for God in this world. People struggle to kind of group this whole chapter together. They think maybe it's about work. Or they'll split off the first part and put it with chapter 3 and then look at the rest of it. It's best to just view it as observations that he makes. God's in control of all things, and yet we see all of these problems in life. And we can learn from them. We can learn something from what's happening in the world. We don't have to just go off. In fact, that would be bad to just go off, dig a cave somewhere in the ground, and live there the rest of our life, thinking that that's what God wants. We don't run from problems in the world. We recognize them. We do what we can to help, but we learn from negative examples. So I want you to see Solomon's four observations of the world that serve as a negative example of how to live a godly life. Negative example, meaning you don't do what he's describing, you do the opposite. And only in one case does he give us the positive. But we can imply, we can infer how to live based on the negative examples. First of all, uh, a subject that he touched on briefly in chapter 3. Oppression exists without comfort. It's a fact. The first three verses just say, it's a fact there's oppression in the world. Christians shouldn't deny that. Christians shouldn't go along as if evil doesn't exist, as if people don't misuse power, if corruption doesn't exist in our world, in our government, even in churches today. Verse 1, he says, I looked again. So you'll see this coming up. I looked, I saw, I observed. That's what breaks up these four sections. So here in verse 1, verse 4, I have seen. Verse 7 starts off, then I looked again. And even the last section we'll look at today in verse thir- starts in verse 13. You see down in 15, I have seen. So observations, things he saw. He didn't have to go live out oppression. He saw it. He saw it when he went through his life. He saw oppression everywhere. He looked at all the acts of oppression, which were being done under the sun. Man's perspective is what he's looking at. He's not giving us God's perspective on this. Now, again, we can infer that. We can imply that. But he's not saying, here's the divine word that I got from God to tell you how to fix oppression. We're not going to be able to do that anyway. Jesus said, the poor will always be with you. We should do what we can, but we cannot be God upon the earth. So this phrase, under the sun, is very unique to Ecclesiastes. It comes up 29 times in the book. It just means life on earth, life in this world. When Solomon speaks, he often speaks about life in this world, the here below. And that's in contrast with what goes on in God's heavenly realm. Where God is, all things are perfect. Where God manifests His special presence in His throne room in heaven, there is no injustice, there is no oppression. Everybody has the comfort that they need. But here on earth, it's different. 
And so he's telling us he observed all of these acts of oppression. And his goal is not to tell us in this section how to be saved. He's telling us how to live a life as a believer. Okay, now you're saved. That's what he's writing to the people of Israel who are supposed to be saved. They claim to be saved. He's saying, here's how you live with all these problems. You first acknowledge them. Oppression exists. The tears of the oppressed. He saw their tears. He didn't just see and read about it in the news or on TV. He, He actually saw people who were crying over oppression. And that they had no one to comfort them. So what is oppression? It gets thrown around a lot these days. We need to define it. Oppression is not just when you get your feelings hurt. It's not just when someone does something you don't like. It's defined as a prolonged, cruel, or unjust treatment, or unjust exercise of authority. That's just looking it up in an Oxford English dictionary. Cruel or unjust treatment, or a wrong exercise of authority. And he says, I've seen the tears from that. He's seen people weep. He's seen emotion. He's bringing out that emotion for us. And he repeats it twice here. You see in the next line, the side of their oppressors, there was power. But again, he says, there's no one to comfort them. Oppression exists. And he says, I've seen it so many times where no one's there to be with them, to comfort them, to encourage them. There's no one there. You look around your life and you've probably seen people like that. Often unbelievers who are struggling. They don't know how to make sense of the world. They're down. They're hopeless. Now it's doubtful that Solomon ever really suffered oppression. He had everything that a person could ask for. But his dad, his father David did. His father David was hounded by King Saul. Always being persecuted and afflicted. In fact, many of the Psalms, like the one we read today, is about that affliction. They're chasing him. They're killing his men. They want to kill David. So he would have known what that was like. And he also would have heard from all the kings and queens that came to Israel and met with him. He would have heard stories about oppression. He would have seen it in the lower courts, even in Israel. Ambassadors would have come from other nations. He had a good grasp of this. Now, often today, we're told wrongly that we ought to look for systemic oppression. We ought to look for an underlying oppression in our world and our government and our churches. And yet these types of oppression that are individual, personal, real are often ignored. People will talk and talk and talk about systemic racism but not even address the fact that babies are being killed in the womb every day. You might remember a few months ago when we put that counter up and showed you how many abortions a day were occurring. And it was just scrolling so fast. By the end of the service, there was another thousand babies had been killed. How many types of oppression do we even see today? Abortion. We see people oppressing within a family. We see moneylenders criminals oppressing others. We see oppression in the workplace. Just being a Christian will get you oppressed sometimes today. Doing the right thing will get you oppressed, fired. You don't get to be promoted. You get a dock and pay. The courts, we often see oppression there. 
Recently, they said in California, you can't even have a Bible study in your home. You can't even have a Bible study in your home. Yesterday, or a couple of days ago, the Supreme Court overturned that. Sometimes local governments or higher governments oppress. Just remember Hitler and Stalin and what they did to their own people. Marched them right out into the forest and shot them. Now today we see lighter forms of oppression in our country, but certainly things like that still exist in the world. Islamic terrorists, oppression is certainly there for the Christian and for the weak, for the poor. Public shootings, child pornographers, sexual abuse, physical abuse by a spouse, parent, or stranger. Child laborers still exist in the world. Sex trafficking, spiritual oppression. There are churches out there that oppress their members. They exercise authority that's not given the elders in the Bible. We hear stories of that when new people come in. And they ask us if we're going to do the strangest things when they join. Things that aren't anywhere in Scripture. And we ask, where did you get that? Well, that's what my previous church did. No, we don't do that here. But it exists out there. There's oppression in false religions. Husbands and fathers will twist the theology of male headship and oppress their own family. As Bible scholar Walt Kaiser reminds us, even in a democracy like ours, there can be tyranny of the majority if the principles guiding that majority are not taken from the Word of God. Nowadays, you have to have a bathroom that fits whatever gender that people claim. There's talk of making churches follow that. There are schools now that won't rent facilities to churches if the church doesn't abide by what the school believes about homosexuality and gender. Those are just some examples of oppression in our society today. And there's so many more. But just remember, as a believer, we always have a comforter, even though Solomon says he looks around and doesn't see comfort. The believer always has a comforter. Always. And that's God. That's the three persons of the Godhead. In fact, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He starts off in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. He keeps using that word, comfort, comfort, comfort. God comforts us when we are afflicted. Because Paul was living that. And he says, even in times like that, God is with you and he's giving you comfort so that you can go tell others about that comfort that God gives only in Christ. So there we have the Father, we have the Lord Jesus. And then Acts 9.31, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up. And going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. A church has the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No matter what kind of individual or group affliction or oppression that we might see. No matter what's coming down the line in our world. God is with us. And He comforts us. But Solomon continues. He continues on just seeing what he observes. So in verse 2 he says, I congratulated the dead who are already dead, more than the living who are still living. He's bringing out the emotion here that's experienced. Solomon's the king, and he's saying, I still can't fix all this oppression. Even if it was in his own country, he can't fix it. And so he just throws out this example here. Congratulations if you're already dead. 
because now you don't have to suffer. In a world like that, what else could a poor person do? What else could an afflicted person do but call out to God and wish that their life would come to an end? Now, he's speaking like many other people in the Bible. He's speaking like many other people in the Bible. Sometimes Christians look at this one in the next verse and say, how could he say that? How could he say that? He's speaking with emotion. He's not saying, go out and do these things. He's not talking about suicide here. He knows that that's wrong. He's saying, look, with such emotion, congratulations to the dead who are already dead. This is like Jonah. Remember Jonah as he whined about God's grace? And he was serious. He says, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. He would rather die than see all those Ninevites saved. And he was serious about that. Or how about Elijah, a holy prophet of God, the one that gets transfigured with Jesus and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. The one that the Jews are looking to right now, because Elijah is supposed to come back before the Messiah in their mind. We know that Messiah has already come. This holy prophet who's fleeing oppression. Remember, Jezebel the queen was killing all the prophets of God. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I'm not better than my father's. He didn't take matters into his own hand. He just said, Lord, this is so bad. If it's your will, take my life. And God showed up and said, stop complaining. There's a lot of other people still out there that belong to me. How about the Apostle Paul in prison? And Philippians 1.22. I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having this desire to depart and be with Christ. For that is very much better. He's saying things are so hard. And not only that, but I want to see Christ. He's getting up there in his age and he wants to see the Lord. Now, he didn't take matters into his own hand, but he wanted to see the Lord. So that's all Solomon's doing. He's looking under the sun and saying, for some people who can't get out of that oppression, especially unbelievers, he's saying, better off dead. And then he takes it another step here in verse 3. But better off than both of them is the one who's never existed who has never seen the evil activity that's done under the sun. It hurts so bad to see such evil. It hurts to see children oppressed, afflicted, beaten, trafficked. Why? It's sort of like he's crying out, why, God, did you even make them? Now we know, and he's already said, God has a purpose for everything. So this isn't ammunition to say that this whole book is skeptical. It's atheist. He's already established at the very beginning of this section, God's in control of all things. But now under the sun, as a man living on the earth, he's crying out. He's saying, my whole life I've seen this. And it's hard. He's not saying that abortion is right. Of course, he knows that's wrong. They knew it from the beginning of the Bible. They knew it from creation because it's a life. So anybody who would try to use this verse like that is doing so sinfully. Now, Job goes even further. If this shocks you, listen to Job. Let the day perish on which I was to be born, and the night which said, a boy is conceived. May that day be darkness. Let not God care for it, nor light shine on it. Let darkness and gloom claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it, and so on, all the way through chapter 3 of Job. Why? Because Job's suffering. Job's crying out to God. God, why did this happen? 
Now, in the end, if you were to ask Job at the end of the book, he wouldn't have spoke like this. But in his frustration and his sadness and his oppression and affliction, he did. Jeremiah, he knows that Jerusalem will be destroyed. He's going to see it. He's going to experience it. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, says, Cursed be the day when I was born. Let the day not be blessed when my mother bore me. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father, saying, A baby boy has been born to you, and make him very happy. Strong language in the Bible. Why? Because it's right to see evil and cry out to God. It's wrong to ignore it like it doesn't exist. It's wrong to take matters into your own hand and take your life. But to call out to God like David often did in the Psalms. We see example after example of that in the Bible. Now, as long as a person just looks at this life, they're going to be hopeless. These were godly examples that I gave you. But if people don't even have God, if they don't have Christ as Savior, if they have no hope of the next life, they don't even see this life as a staging ground for the next. And they're going to lose hope. If they're oppressed now, what hope is there? Now, the believer knows that no matter what comes now, God will make all things right in the end. We saw that in chapter 3, didn't we? That God will judge. We saw that last week in Acts 17. That Christ is coming back to judge. But the unbeliever doesn't have that. There's no comfort if you just think about this life. Now, if you're struggling with thoughts like this, if this kind of language is things that you're thinking, then come and see one of your pastors. Come and talk to us. Come and get biblical counsel. Don't take Solomon as justification for you feeling like this or saying these things. Come and get help, is what I'm saying. So what should we do about oppression? What should we do, Solomon? He doesn't tell us. He often doesn't tell us. He's stirring us up to bring us to that final conclusion in the book. But other places he tells us, Proverbs 31, verse 8. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the afflicted and needy. And he says there in Proverbs 31, defend those who can't defend themselves. Like James says, care for the orphans and widows. Defend those who need help. Open your mouth for them. That's what a righteous person ought to do. Comfort the oppressed. And if you can't undo an oppression, then work on that. But don't think you can fix everything that's broken in the world. Don't think you can change the unbelieving mindset that's going on in the world right now. Don't think that you can be Christ and bring in the kingdom and you're Jesus that can fix all the problems. We wait for God to do that. But do what you can. If you can adopt, adopt. If you can foster, foster. If you can help a widow, help a widow. If you can help an orphan, help an orphan. If you see somebody that's being afflicted, help out. Don't just stand by and watch. That's how it works in the Christian life. If you can do something, if God brings that opportunity into your circle, do something. Do something with organizations if you decide to do that. But don't chase it as an idol. Remember what Solomon said earlier. He said, what's crooked can't be straightened. God has designed certain things to happen right now. And we can fix some things if he gives us that ability. We can't fix it all. That'll frustrate you. And people chase those organizations 
and those ideas and make them an idol. Don't do that. Just be righteous. Be godly. Help out. If a brother asks for something, give it to them. If a sister asks for help, help them. In Psalm 72, a righteous leader is described, and this would be good for all of us to do. If we want to see the final end of oppression, we look to the Lord. But until then, we do things like he says in, go to Psalm 82. Now, oppression and systemic oppression is a big topic these days. Maybe later I'll address that all in one sermon. We can't cover all those aspects today. But we can at least look and see a few places what the Bible says. Psalm 72, verse 12. A righteous leader. What should a person be when we go to the polls and vote? What are we looking for? Not the perfect man, not a pastor. But Psalm 72, 12. For he will deliver the needy when he cries for help. The afflicted also. And him who has no helper, he will have compassion on the poor and needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. He will rescue their life from oppression and violence, and their blood will be precious in his sight. For example, abortion. The blood that is being spilled. When we look for a leader, we need to look somebody who stands strongly against that. Not somebody who's weak on it. Certainly not somebody who says, I'm a Christian, but I support abortion. Not possible. Strongly against that issue. All right, let's move on to number two, the second observation. Jealousy over wealth does not satisfy. Jealousy over wealth, that's the next few verses, does not satisfy. Much of the things that people have in this world is due to envy, jealousy, covetousness. Many people would never work so hard if they didn't want to keep up with their neighbors, their friends, their family members. Verse 4, I have seen that every labor, every skill which is done is the result of rivalry. Literally jealousy or zeal here between a man and his neighbor. This is not healthy competition. This is not a capitalistic society that's competing for the best prices and the best jobs and the best company. No, these are individuals that are driven to work harder and harder due to jealousy. I want what that person has. I'm jealous that they're doing better than me. They're making more money than me. I've got to work harder to get ahead of them. This dog-eat-dog world, this rat race world. I want to beat him. I want to have his stuff. This is why God addressed this major sin issue in the Ten Commandments. The Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. He shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Exodus 20, 17. That's an idol. Greed, Paul says, is an idol. Covetousness is an idol. A non-Christian author once said, whenever a friend succeeds, a little something in me dies. I had a friend like this growing up. You probably all did. No matter what I got for Christmas, no matter what my parents gave me, new bike, pogo stick, whatever, my friend always had one better. Or at least he acted like he did. And I'd come to him and I'd say, I'm so excited. I got this new game. I got this new bike. He'd say, that's nothing. I got one that's twice as good. So much better. And then when I got older in college, I had another friend just like that, except it was with bigger toys, adult stuff. 
People are always competing, not for the Lord, not for working hard for him. But unbelievers and sometimes even believers are working just to get what the other person has. Their friends, their neighbors. And he says this too is Hevel. It's temporary. It's transitory. It's a mist. It's a vapor. It's like striving after wind, he says. You can't catch the wind and hold it in your hand. And if you chase money like that, it's going to be gone. That's not what life is about with the Lord. Building wealth is like chasing the wind. You get it? And then someone just wants to take it from you. Or you don't have enough, you think, and you want to get more and more and more. Or the government's going to take more from you. The more you make, the more they tax you. And there's new taxes always in the plan, in the works. It's Hevel. Here one day, gone the next. Now again, Proverbs, Solomon writes in Proverbs 23 and verse 4. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Don't, don't wear yourself out. That's not what life is about. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it's gone, he says. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. You chase it, and it seems to just keep moving away. Keep moving away. You're like the donkey that has the carrot hanging over his head. And you just keep on chasing that carrot, but you never catch it. Can you catch the wind? No. Can you catch satisfaction and happiness from obtaining more and more? No. It doesn't work. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't bring happiness. I read about a survey they conducted a few years ago. They asked people two questions. How much money do you make? And how much more do you need to be happy? And no matter what a person made, it was always 25% more on average that they wanted. The poorest people said, if I had 25% more, I'd be happy. The richest people said, if I had 25% more, I'd be happy. When it comes to money, when it comes to things, when it comes to toys, cars, houses, there's always more that you desire if you listen to your heart. Really, this is about being a workaholic. Workaholic, chasing wealth and money to keep up with everyone else, no matter what it takes. See, we think it's like sports when we're adults. We think the harder I work and the more I give, the better I'll get and the more money I'll make. I just need to work harder. I need to work out more. I need to get stronger and faster. Well, sports can be an idol and so can obtaining wealth. Well, if this is the case, then what's the use of working? Why even work hard at all? That's what he's talking about in verse 5. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. The fool just sits back and is lazy. He doesn't want to work at all. He says, fine, Solomon. If it's all about jealousy, I'm not going to compete with that. I have a new insight into the world. I'm just going to sit here and relax and take it easy. I'll let somebody else take care of me. I'll let the government take care of me. Folding of the hands means to sleep in ancient times, to lay around all day, to sit back and just take it easy. The Bible has a lot to say about being lazy. Proverbs 6.10, again, Solomon says, A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. You sit back, you take it easy, you don't work. You work very little, don't even work enough to provide for what you need. 
It's going to come so fast, your poverty will, like an armed man breaking into your house. Proverbs 24, 33. A little sleep, a little slumber. Same idea here. A little folding of the hands to rest and your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. Almost the exact same. He repeats that idea twice in Proverbs and again here in Ecclesiastes. Laziness, it's a sure path to self-destruction. You see, it consumes his own flesh. Self-cannibalization, metaphorically speaking. Not only will you physically waste away if you don't have food, but your whole life is a waste if you just sit around and do nothing. Or to be active. Or to be working for our family support and for the Lord's glory. So in verse 6, he puts it all together here. In verse 4, you've got the guy who works too much. Or a woman. This could be at home. This could be uh, anywhere. Verse 5 is the person who works none at all. And 6, he says, one handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. Instead of being a workaholic and driven by greed and selfishness, and have two hands full of everything you want in life, and working all the time, and having really nothing to show for it in the end, he says, relax. Just work this much, and enjoy life this much. You can do both. And if you're a Christian, that's what the Bible says. The Bible never says, work as much as you can. Make as much money as you can. The Bible never says, sit back, sleep all day, lay around and play games, and do nothing. It says, work, and it says, enjoy the fruit of your labor. Because it's all given by God. The work's given by God. The fruit is given by God. Give thanks to the Lord. This is what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion, and eat their own bread. Work enough to provide, work enough to give, work enough, but take a break sometimes. Take a vacation. Just heard about a pastor who hasn't taken a vacation since he got to the church. It's been three or four years. A ministry can be tough. The guy has not yet had a vacation. Feel bad for him. Instead of being a workaholic, let's take rest Let's have peace. Make time to set aside for enjoyment for your family, for volunteering at the church, even leisure activities. One handful of profit is enough. Do you need both hands? You're going to go to your grave with both hands full of stuff. And what happened to everything else in life? What happened to your family? What happened to your service to the Lord? I'm just too busy to read the Bible. I'm too busy to pray. Got to get up, got to get to work. Got to get in that traffic. Got to get home at night, put the kids to bed and go to sleep so I can get up the next morning. One hand is enough. You remember what Solomon wrote in Psalm 127? It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late. It's vain. It's, it's meaningless. It's a mist. It's a vapor. To retire late, to get up early, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he, God, gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Jesus said, trust in the Lord. All these things will be given to you. Pursue the kingdom of Christ. All these other things you need will be 
supplied. Well, should I, should I move? Should I take a job that doesn't require so much time? Should we just have one person in the family work instead of both spouses? Trust in the Lord. One hand is enough. If it covers your expenses, if it allows you to give, if it allows you to do good things and provides for your family, that's enough. Jesus rested, didn't he? Jesus did more work than you'll ever do. Just one miracle, he did more than we'll ever do in our life. There was so much power in that one miracle. And yet he fell asleep on the boat, didn't he? In the middle of a storm. Oh, it's not godly to take naps, especially on Sunday. Well, Jesus fell asleep on the boat in the middle of a storm. And then he got upset, kind of, when they woke him up, right? You meant a little faith. Don't you think I could take care of this in my sleep? He also used to tell his disciples, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. And then in parentheses, Mark says, in Mark 6.31, For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They loved the people so much. Jesus loved the people so much. They were pressing in on him, always there, always wanting to hear his teaching and have someone healed. And he says, we got to slip away for a while, guys. This is too much. Let's go eat. Learn to live on less and enjoy what God has given. As David Gibson says in his commentary, to live this way where you're always trying to keep both hands full of stuff is like shooting yourself in one foot so you can hop faster with the other. Why not stop, he says, and enjoy today in a very real way? This can happen in your spiritual life. We had guys in seminary. They'd spend all their time studying. I'm working for the Lord now. The problem was that their wife and kids never saw them. Or if they did, they never did anything together. They never enjoyed time together. So there was always this story in seminary that they told us to scare us. But the story goes that a guy graduated, he got his diploma, he came home, and all his books were on the bed. And the wife said, there you go, take them. You cared more about them than you did me. And the guy was disqualified for ministry the rest of his life. Probably just to scare us, right, Frank? But still, be careful what you focus on. Be careful what you focus on. Number three, isolation makes life difficult. There was a sermon preached on friendship not too long ago by one of our elders, Joey. I encourage you to go and find that on our website and listen to it. But Solomon is now addressing the fact that, look, if you're by yourself, it's going to be hard. It's going to be much harder in life if you're alone. Look at verse 7. I looked again at Hevel under the sun. And verse 8, there was a certain man without a dependent, literally without a second, without someone who could come behind him and inherit his stuff. He had neither a son nor a brother. Yet there was no end to all his labor. He worked all the time. He's just working and working to build up wealth, not to support his family, not to give to his local place of worship, and not to build anything but wealth for himself. And Solomon says, indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches. He had it all, and he looked around and said, what's the point? This doesn't satisfy me. Why? He never asked, and for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is Havel, 
And it's a grievous task. It's hard. It's evil. It's completely sinful to do that. He labors, he toils for himself, and he never stops to ask why he's doing it. Why is he doing it? Oh, well, that's for my family. Sometimes guys say that, and they're laboring way more than their family needs. This guy doesn't even have a family. Why is he obtaining so much wealth? Then your NASB, if you have the NASB, it's in italics there. He never asked, but that's implied. It's not in the original Hebrew, but it's implied by the question. The idea here, why am I doing so much? Wouldn't it be better if he went and found some friends? Wouldn't it be better if he went and adopted an heir, which they often did in ancient times? Wouldn't it be better if he searched out and had a wife? You get the idea that he's not married. And it certainly implied that he'd do better to take a break, that he'd do better to rest. Not to spend the rest of his life taking a break, but just to take a break every once in a while and rest. But Dwayne Garrett says about this passage, people devote their lives to acquiring wealth, but have no one to share it with. Money is their only kin. That's a powerful statement. Money's their family. They don't have any family. He didn't care about a family. He cared about himself and the money that was his family. This can be applied to retirement. The idea of retirement in our society has been overdone. It's not in the Bible that you just get as much wealth as possible and then you kick back and take it easy the rest of your life. Collect seashells. John Piper has a whole book on this. How people, Christians, go collect seashells on the seashore the rest of their life. He says, what's the purpose in that? You've got to have purpose even in your retirement. You've got to spend time with your church, spend time with your friends, your family. Serve them. Do what you can. Now, there was retirement from the priestly service in the Bible at a certain age. But those people were still productive. He says, look, this man had no companions. He had no friends. He had no family. And now that prompts Solomon to address this. It's the only time in this list that he gives the positive side. The negative example is the guy who's all alone, working for himself, and never even stops to ask, why am I doing this? But now he's going to give the positive. He's basically going to say this can be solved by having companions. Companion can be family member, spouse, friends, your church friends, church fellowship. It's the contrast to a lonely person who's a workaholic. And he's going to give three examples of what that looks like. Three examples. And he uses the illustration here of people going on a journey. But this doesn't mean when you decide to drive to Dallas, you better have somebody beside you in case your car breaks down. Right? It's an example to teach us about life. Life in the Bible is often a journey. It's pictured as walking. You're walking through life. And so he's going to give three examples. First of all, he's going to talk about a helper. Another person in your life is a helper. Verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. You might enjoy working by yourself. You might say, you know what, I do better by myself because I have no interruptions and I can focus. But the Bible says having someone to help you is better than if you did it by yourself. You can get more accomplished. If you're in business, you can have more labor. As a parent, it's much easier With a mom and a dad. That's why God designed it that way. At a job, it's much easier if you have people working with you. All the responsibility is not upon you. 
growing a company, or even in ministry. Even in ministry. Started out with two elders, now we have three. What a blessing. What a blessing that is. A helper. And the main reason is, verse 10, For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there's not another to lift him up. On this journey, on the road in an ancient world, there's rocks, there's pits you could fall into, there's holes. You might break your leg. Remember the guy in the Good Samaritan? He got beat up, got thrown down the hill. There's travails. There's problems that come up. And you have somebody else in life to help you. No matter what it is, to have a companion, whether it's a spouse or friend, is a help. To have people in the church that love you is a help to you in life. Isolation, it makes life difficult. Now, second example, he says, it's also a comforter. Verse 11. So you have the physical help to get you through life, but you also have the emotional help here. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? No sexual connotation here. Doesn't even have to be a spouse. Probably uh, two men traveling along the road here. And at nights in the desert, in a dry area, it gets really cold. It gets really cold. And there's no humidity in the air. Travelers would join together to keep warm. Maybe share the same blanket. Their body warmth would be put to good use. And this is a metaphor for emotional comfort. The world's a dark and cold place. To have someone else brings you comfort. To have a spouse, to have a friend, to have friends, to have a church that's full of friends, gives you comfort. Emotional warmth throughout life. It's hard by yourself. It's difficult. The uh, counselor, Jay Adams, who recently went to be with the Lord, he said there's a sense of comfort here, a relative security and warmth in the figurative sense of the term, and having someone who's ever close beside you in life and who depends on you and on home you can depend. So a comforter. Thirdly, he mentions a defender in verse 12. If one can overpower him, he's talking about one who attacks a bandit, a robber. If one can overpower him who is alone, Two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Travelers with a friend have protection from bandits. If one guy attacks, you're more likely to defend and resist him with two people. By yourself, you may not. They might catch you by surprise. You don't know. And if two are a strong group, what about three? That's even better. Three against one is better odds. I'd take that if I was traveling on an ancient road where you could die at any minute. Three friends make it even easier in life. Three friends join together. No magical number here. We could say four, five, six, a hundred. Life by itself is difficult. Even as a Christian, yes, we have the Lord, but the Lord never told us to go out and live by ourselves and ignore everyone else. He never said that. In fact, Jesus had 12 disciples, and then he had hundreds always following him, and thousands Wanting to be fed for free. See, there's a danger to being a loner. In seminary, we were told that a lone wolf is a dead wolf. You get by yourself, and you're more tempted to sin. You're more tempted to fall. Make sure you have men in a church that can support you, that can keep you accountable, that can encourage you. Same for the women. 
in our church here. No matter where you're at in life, you need other people. There's a danger to being alone. Wolves run in pack. You get one by himself, he's going to be attacked and killed. Remember David and Jonathan in the Bible? Elijah and Elisha. Naomi and Ruth. Spouses, when they're married, have one another. Friendship as well, though. Even though in Genesis 2.18 it says it's not good for man to be alone, well, that applies in friendships as well. It's not good for you to cut yourself off from your church. It's not good to cut yourself off from other people. Now, there are some people in life that you don't want to be around. They tempt you to sin. They try to hurt you. There's a lot of believers that you should be around. The best place to develop a good friendship is in a biblical church. It's not rocket science. You just need to be here. You need to be in the different studies, in worship regularly, and you're going to meet people. You're going to meet people. You're going to get to be friends with them. If you're serving with them, you will make friends. They don't develop by forcing your way in. Sometimes new people go to a church and they just think, okay, I'm here, everybody. My first day, everybody come up and be my best friend. Well, we're pretty friendly here. We've never kicked anybody out or turned them away. But it takes time to develop friendships. You've got to be around. Just like if you're married, you've got to be around your spouse to develop a good, strong relationship. You've got to be around your church to develop a good friendship. They develop over time. So don't make life difficult by yourself. This doesn't mean if you're single, you have to go get married right away. Although that might not be a bad thing for many of you. But this is talking about friends as well. Find other people that you can go through life with. Not 24-7. That's going to be annoying, right? It says something about that in Proverbs. But people that you can worship with, grow with, learn with, and do fun things and enjoy life with. All right, lastly, and this is a huge topic, but I've only got a few minutes to cover. So the last few verses here, 13 through 16, political power and popularity are uncertain. Now, if you've been around a while, I don't have to tell you, but I will, that politics... And the world is very unstable and dangerous and transitory and fleeting. And when you're living a life that with wisdom, a wise Christian life, you need to learn from what happens in politics and power in the world. You need to learn from it. And you need to realize there's total depravity in human nature. If you remember those things, look, God's in control and man is depraved. You'll do a lot better with your political philosophy in life. Things won't surprise you as much. Things won't shock you as much. Verse 13, a poor yet wise lad is better than an old fool, an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. So the lad here is a young man. It could be anywhere from 17 to 40. This, this Hebrew word is used for both age ranges here. Probably somebody on the younger side of the spectrum. And at the end here, this king won't receive instruction, the NASB says. It's literally take warning. The king doesn't listen to any warnings. Solomon probably had some experience with that as he turned from the Lord and chased idols. And people were telling him, don't do that. God's word says you'll be punished. Our whole nation will be punished. But he didn't take warning. 
And also, we find wisdom with age, but it doesn't guarantee wisdom, does it? Here's an old foolish king. He's been ruling his whole life, probably, and he's got foolish thinking. Now, this story kind of reminds you of Joseph and Pharaoh, doesn't it? Joseph's in prison. He gets out. It becomes the second most powerful person in Egypt. Sort of reminds you of Saul and David. Saul was very foolish. He was the older man. He wanted to sin against the Lord and kill David. David's the young man. He starts out as a poor shepherd boy. He becomes king of all Israel. Verse 14. For he, and I think the he here is the young lad, the young person. For he has come out of prison to become king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. He's born in a poor family. He's in prison. Back then, prisons aren't for hardened criminals. Those people were executed right after the trial. If you went to prison, it's because you owed a debt you couldn't pay, or you are a political enemy of the ruler, of the king. And so this young man's in prison, probably a political enemy. And eventually he gets out, and he's got wisdom. So somehow he gets the kingdom away from the old foolish king. And everybody cheers, and everybody loves this guy. He's got wisdom. Who wants a foolish person in power, right? Who wants a foolish person running our country? We want somebody with wisdom. Look at verse 15. I've seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. So you had the old man. He gets replaced. So you had this first young lad. Everybody loves him. And suddenly we got a second young lad coming in, replacing the other young guy. What's just happened? Oh, we love this this second king. We love him. Oh, this third guy looks even better. All of a sudden, popularity swings over to him. The people were very happy one day, and then they grow tired, and they want a new king. Similar to what happened with Solomon after he died. Flip over real quick to 1 Kings. Some people think maybe Solomon is um, sort of expositing this prophecy that was given to him. 1 Kings chapter 11. Now, we won't read how this prophecy gets fulfilled, but if you want to go home later and read the rest of 1 Kings 11, you'll see it. 1 Kings 11, 11. And you'll see, your Bible probably says at the beginning of chapter 11, Solomon turns from God. So in verse 11, So the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. A person in your kingdom who has nothing. A poor person. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but will I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Not exactly the same scenario, but you can see how this thinking would be in his mind. And of course, Jeroboam is the last one in that line of the prophecy. And he's a wicked king. He's an evil king. He sets up an idol in northern Israel that people worship. And leads all of his descendants into false worship, idolatry. What's the point here? Verse 16. There's no end to all the people. To all who were before them and even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him. That's his third guy. The people flock to him. They throng to him. They think he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. But Solomon just says, it won't be long before they're not happy with him. For this too is Havel and striving after wind. 
It comes, it goes. Leaders come and they go. It's a big deal. It's in the news every day. The newest president, all the things he's doing wrong, he'll be gone in a few years. And God's timeline, it's just a blip. It's a fleeting vapor. Politics, power, popularity, they're all fleeting and chasing after wind. They are not the most important things in this world. Now, they're important. You should vote. You should care. You live in this country. You're a citizen of this country and this world. But if you sink all your hopes into politics, political power, it's just another idol. It's just another idol, he says. It's just gone one day. You can't go along with the flow, with the tide of the world. You've got to stick to the Lord. Don't waste your time sinking all your efforts in life into politics. It won't save. Vote. Vote biblically. Care about what's happening in your country. Speak out against oppression. But don't put it all there. And don't be isolated. And don't be a workaholic striving over jealousy and covetousness. Let's live for the Lord. Let's follow his word. Let's care about what Christ wants us to do with our time and our money and our friends. Amen. Lord, we thank you so much for this word. It often uh, sharpens us. It hits us sometimes where it hurts, but we need to hear it, Lord. We need to live for you. Shave off these things we don't need. Prune us from these desires to chase this thing and that thing. And let us focus on you. We love you, Lord. We want to do your will. In the name of Christ, amen.